Let's continue now our series then on anxious, anxious for nothing, on anxiety, on worry, what the Bible teaches about it. One blessing of premarital counseling, which I've had the opportunity to do for years now with dozens of couples, is that it gives those couples an opportunity to do what I call a baggage check, a baggage check. Everybody needs to do a baggage check, but very few people actually do. Most people go through their lives and they never check the baggage that you're carrying around. But everybody is carrying baggage. And some of the baggage is, is very good. And some of it's not. We're all a mixture of on our baggage. And if you, if you never have a, a defined time, an intense time to think about your baggage, then you will continue to carry around both types, the good and the bad, with you throughout your life. Most people never go through an inventory of their baggage. And so they just carry it around and they carry it into their relationships, including marriage, including the church, at work, into their parenting, every relationship, you're just carrying it around. This is who I am. This is the baggage I've been accumulating over time. Got it with me for everybody I meet, every relationship I enter into. So you take marriage, the most intense human relationship. And what you get is two different people with two different sets of experiences. They've each got their own baggage when they, they come into it. So they've got their nature, they're different people, they have different personalities, they have different wiring that God has designed them with. So you've got two different people, they're different by nature, they're also different because they have different backgrounds, they're different by nurture by observation, by what they saw modeled before them, primarily in the home that they grew up in, by observation, habits then that they saw from others and developed themselves. These nurturing traits are things that we absorb just by osmosis and being in the, in the environment. So you've got your baggage, i got my baggage, i got my natural baggage, i got my nurture baggage. You've got yours. The problem is most of us don't have opportunity to, to actually check it out, whether it's good or bad. So when we encounter a difference in that marriage context between the two, which of course we will very, very early on, you know, sometimes not so much during the, the dating process, which is why dating is, is such a game, because it's not real. So you're on your best behavior, they're on their best behavior, and then you get married, and then you go, hey, what happened to the person I was dating? And as Counselor Rick, Rick Thomas said to us a few years ago when he was here, he says, oh, that person was not me. That was my representative. <laughs> That's who I wanted you to think I am. And very often that is what happens in the dating process. Premarital counseling helps you to get real about who you, who you really are. But when, not if, we encounter a difference then, maybe not in dating because we're all pretending, but certainly when we get married, it leads, now get this, to a contest rather than a conversation. Because now it is, well, okay, you got you know, your opinion and you got your way of doing things. 
Your family has got their way of doing things. And I've got my opinion, and I've got my way of doing stuff, and I've got my family's way of doing stuff. And here we are, and it's a, it becomes a contest. Rather than a conversation to find out, hey, I wonder if my, the way I do this, I wonder if my opinion, I wonder if what my family modeled before me and I ab- absorbed, I wonder if all that's actually the best. That conversation doesn't happen. It becomes a contest for me to show you why we're better. Why can't everybody be like us? Why can't people be like my family? Why should I be, be like yours? So I, I want to get the upper hand rather than to examine the hand that I brought into this thing. And it's a contest because you have issues too. So if you think there's a problem with mine, well, there's a problem with yours too. So why should I give up my way of doing things or my way of thinking on this? Why should I conform to you? After all, I kind of like me. Now, did you all know that you're predisposed to, like, like you? Uh, You are. The Bible says people will be lovers of themselves. Now, you might be sitting here and going, for my whole, I hate myself. I hate myself. In fact, fact, I hate myself so much, I'm, I'm depressed a lot about myself. Now, you have to think about this. But if you really hated yourself, you wouldn't hate the fact that things aren't going well for you. You would actually love that because you hate yourself. You see, but nobody thinks that way, right? Nobody actually hates themselves. We hate the fact that things don't go the way we, our lives haven't gone the way we want. I understand that. I totally understand that. But we just got to be real about it. The Bible teaches we don't hate ourselves, we actually love ourselves. And and you need to lose the idea that Jesus told you to love yourself. He he didn't do it. (laughs) He was asked, which is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The love your neighbor as yourself has been taken. The as yourself is, Jesus is telling you to love yourself. But here's the problem. That would be three commands. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And Jesus did the math for you. Because the next thing he said was, all the law and the prophets hang on these. Anybody remember? Love God and love other people. Jesus never said love yourself. He doesn't have to tell me. He doesn't have to tell me to love myself. I already do. He doesn't have to tell you to love yourself. You already do. My wife and I still talk about this cute little... um, Christmas play that uh, she and I went to, yeah, Christmas play, that her little niece was in years ago. They went to a little Lutheran school, and so they put on this Christian Christmas play, and the niece was dressed up like a little sheep, and the little kids were all dressed up like a little sheep, little sheep, and they were running around, and they were singing a song from Isaiah chapter 53 that says, we, you know, remember how th- this verse, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. You guys, you guys remember that, right? Here's, here's the song. They're all dancing around and they're singing, we like sheep, we like sheep. 
We like sheep because sheep is what we are. So they're taking this all we like sheep. And they said, we like sheep. We like sheep. And you know why we like sheep? Because sheep is what we are. What's not to like? And that's the way we are. That's the way you are. That's the way I am. By nature, we like ourselves. We might not like the way things have gone for ourselves. That's a different thing. But we like ourselves. And you bring two people into relationship like that now. Why should I conform to you? you got your own problems. And besides, I'm pretty good. But what if this is really not a contest between you and me? What if we could do that? What if we could make this not you bring your baggage and you bring your uh, nurture and nature into it and I do the same and then we just sort of bicker over and try to get the upper hand? What if we don't make it a contest between you and me but rather between me and God and you and God? What if instead of comparing and contrasting myself to you or somebody else, I do what the Bible says to do. Compare and contrast yourself to the character of God. Oh, now I got work to do, don't I? Now, I am, now I'm not so great. Now I got lots of things to work on in terms of, I mean, God gives you then a standard outside of yourself and outside of your spouse or anybody else with whom you are in relationship, you now have a standard outside of that. Make that now the thing that you're going to conform to, the character of, of God. And God tells you in his word what you're supposed to feel like and what you're supposed to think like and what you're supposed to talk like and act like. He gives you that standard. It's the conformity to his character. So if my, if my feelings are messed up, as defined by not what God says they should be, then just call it that. Right now, we haven't fixed it, but we got to diagnose it first. So just call it what it is, messed up. So your, your feelings are messed up. Your thoughts are messed up because they don't conform. Not because they don't conform to some other person, including your spouse. They don't conform to God. Your words are messed up. Your actions are messed up. Now we can start to make some progress. Now we can agree that each of us, all of us, has baggage that we need to unload. But not only unload, but replace. You see, because unloading from a biblical standpoint isn't the end. You unload the feelings and the words and the thoughts and the actions that do not conform to the character of God as given in Scripture. Yeah, you, you have to unload that. You've got to reject that. But simply rejecting that is avoiding sin. And avoiding sin is not God's endgame. Conformity to the righteous standard of God is the endgame. So you don't just, you don't just unload. You don't just get rid of. You actually replace with different feelings, with different thoughts, with different words, and with different actions. What if, we, what if we did that? What if people did that in 
group settings like, say, a church? What if they did that in group settings like a small group, a home group? You know, where I don't come into the, I don't come into the home group and I'm, you know, measuring up these people and, you know, when I leave and I'm thinking, man, what is up with them? Some people's kids. No, I'm, th- I'm thinking we've all got our baggage and they've got theirs and I've got mine. Let's help each other with it. And especially in your marriage, that most intense human relationship, what if you did that? What if you did that on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, a yearly basis? The two of you help each other with your baggage because you're not in a contest anymore. And so you trust each other that we're both now helping each other, not conform to each other, but helping each other conform to Jesus. My wife's not in the room here. Is she? There she is. Okay, Kim's back here. I always have to check and and see if it's okay for me to say whatever it is I'm going to say. But no, on on a serious and very positive note, and she would say the same, I'm certain. In our 37 years of marriage, one of the things for which we both are most thankful is that this has been a process of helping each other become more like Jesus. What a great thing, huh? You see, because relationship is for discipleship. And so if you're going to have a relationship for the rest of your life, then do that. Help each other become more like Jesus. And we trust each other. We know that that's our end game. It's not I'm trying to get the upper hand on her. She's trying to get the upper hand on me. It's not the contest. We got rid of all that. I need your help because you see me better than I see me and I see you better than you see you. Because you have rose-colored glasses about you. And I have rose-colored glasses about me. So we, now we can help each other. Your patterns can be unloaded. Your approach can be unloaded, but it can also then, it can also be replaced. Now what does any of that have to do with anxiety? Well, a lot of what we do with anxiety, a lot of what we do with worry is part of the baggage that we bring into it, part of the baggage that we've acquired. I've said in previous sessions that some people have a tendency toward thinking about more things than others. Some people, frankly, are just smarter than others. They just see more, they know more, they can acquire more and process more, more quickly. A person like that is more susceptible to more worry. As opposed to what I said a few weeks ago, those of us that are just fat, dumb, and happy. Just don't see as much. My daughter, my precious daughter, Lainey, who gives me permission to say this, because she has struggled with anxiety, but uh, Kim and I were convinced very early on that one of the reasons that girl struggled with anxiety is because she saw everything. Her mind was on everything. She saw things other kids didn't see. She picked up things other kids didn't pick up. We were very careful in the way we talked around our kids so that they wouldn't be afraid of of things, right? She picked them up anyway. So she's a smart girl, takes after her mom. She's a smart girl. That comment I just made, she takes after her mom in being smart, covers over a multitude of sins for things that I've said. (laughs) 
But really, and, and so if you're like that, if you're a person who's just, your mind's going all the time and you've got a thousand things to, to be worried about, actually that comes from a good trait that you have for many of you. You're smart. You can process a lot. Now you've got to learn to process it differently. And that's what we had to do with, with Lainey over a number of years. All right, so that's what it's got to do with anxiety is that you bring your personality in, into it. You bring your nature into it. You bring into it your nurture as well. How did you see people handle problems? And if you don't do the baggage check, then you'll just take that along with you. And you'll just have an attitude that says, hey, that's just the way I am. Take it or leave it. I mean, should a Christian ever, a Christian ever have the attitude that says, hey, that's just the way I am? Should any of us, any of us, this side of heaven, be satisfied with just the way we are? The answer would be no. This is a continual process, right, of conforming to the image of Jesus. So I haven't arrived, you haven't arrived, none of us have arrived, so none of us should be satisfied. And nobody should be then saying, just take it or leave it. No, all of us should be involved in this baggage check process. So it means you got to feel, think, talk, act different. And I left off last week with saying, here are some of the things the Bible tells us to do in order to make that happen. And I talked a bit at the end of our time last week about reacting to our problems with thankful prayer. Philippians chapter 4, from which that title comes, Be Anxious for Nothing, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Then goes on to say, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So it's a chapter on the very thing we're talking about. And it says, the solution starts with engaging in thankful prayer. React to your problems different than you used to replace the way you used to react to them with instead of complaining, with, instead of wigging out, with thankful prayer. Instead of praying to God with feelings of doubt, discouragement, or discontent, we're to approach Him with a thankful attitude before we utter another word. And we can do that with sincerity when we realize that God promises that whatever we're in, it's not going to be too much for us to bear. He makes that promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13. And he promises to work out everything for our good in the end. And 1 Peter 5, 10, to restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast in the midst of your, of your suffering. So these are key principles for living the Christian life. We go beyond memorizing verses like that to letting them be the grid through which we automatically interpret everything that happens to us. We know that all of our difficulties are within God's purpose, and we thank him for his available power, and his promises. Be thank, being thankful will release you from fear and worry. It's a tangible demonstration of trusting, your, of trusting your situation to God's sovereign hand, to his sovereign control. And it really is easy to do because there are so many things for which to be thankful knowing that God will supply all our needs, Philippians 4.19.
knowing that he stays closely in touch with our lives. Psalm 139 and verse 3, that he cares about us. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, that all power belongs to him. Psalm 62 and verse 11, that he's making us more and more like Christ. Romans 8, 29, and that no detail in this universe escapes his gaze. Psalm 147 and verse 5. So here's an example from the Bible of somebody who did that. Jonah, you guys remember the story of Jonah, right? And God tells Jonah, go and preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah does not. He goes in the opposite direction. He does not want to um, preach to the Ninevites. And when I was a kid in Sunday school, it was my understanding, and I either was taught this or I just caught it, I don't know. But I came away thinking that the reason Jonah did not want to go and preach to the Ninevites is because they were such a violent people, and they were known for their violence, that he was afraid of them. Well, no, it turns out Jonah was afraid, but he wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. He wasn't afraid of their reputation and what they might do to him. You know what he was afraid of, according to the very last chapter in the book of Jonah? He was afraid that God would be merciful to them because he hated them. I don't want to go preach to those people. If I go preach to those people, you might bring them to repentance. And then I have to like them? That's exactly, that was exactly the deal. In fact, when that happened, because you remember God intervened, and Jonah's thrown overboard, and he's swallowed by the great fish, and he you know, spends three nights in the belly of the fish to contemplate his circumstance. And God spares him because he could have just drowned. The fish was not actually a punishment. The fish was a blessing. It saved his life. And God spares him, and he spewed up on dry land. He does go to the Ninevites and preach, and lo and behold, they repent. And in the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah is ticked. He is ticked. He's complaining to God, I knew you would do this. You're a God who's merciful, and you went and showed mercy to them. Don't you know, God, that grace is for people who deserve it? Which is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Grace, by its definition, is undeserved. But implicit in what he's saying is, I deserve it, not them. So he feared, not for his life, he feared God's mercy <laughs> to the Ninevites. But he also knew God's truth. And in the midst of that great fish, he cries out to God. If there was ever an excuse for panic, this was surely it. But Jonah reacted differently. He said this, quote, In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless, worthless idols 
turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. That's from Jonah. That's from Jonah after God rescues him. And he goes and he obeys God. But then he's ticked at the end. So just as an aside, when you do this replacement thing and you replace your immediate go-to as fret and wig out with thankful prayer, when you do that replacement, just be aware this side of heaven, habits are hard to break. And so you may find yourself next week not doing that. So don't give up. It's a process, right? And here's Jonah, the guy who prays this beautiful and accurate prayer, and then just a short time later, he's ticked and he's got it all, he's got it all messed up. That's the way you are, that's the way I am. That's why nobody here gets a one-time fix for their struggles. Because your struggles continue this side of, this side of heaven. Although Jonah had many weaknesses, he reflected profound spiritual stability in that prayer. He was confident of God's ability to deliver him if he so chose. In the same way, the peace of God will help us be stable if we react to our circumstances, no matter how unusual or ordinary, with thankful prayer instead of anxiety. That's the promise of Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a well-known and precious promise of inner calm and tranquility to believers who pray with a thankful attitude. But notice, however, it doesn't promise what the answer to our prayers will be. So it doesn't say if you pray calmly in the midst of, you know, a bunch of stuff going around, but you're able to steel yourself and you're able to calm yourself, and if you pray that way, then God will take away the stuff going around you. It doesn't say what the answer to the prayer will be. But no matter what is happening around you, God can still give you this and will give you this peace that transcends all understanding. And that phrase, it transcends, speaks of it coming from God. It transcends human intellect, analysis, and insight. No human counselor can give it to you because it's a gift from God in response to gratitude and trust. Hear this. The real challenge of Christian living is not to eliminate every uncomfortable circumstance from our lives, but rather to trust our sovereign, wise, good, and powerful God in the midst of every situation. The goal of the Christian life is not to rid you of all the bad stuff in your life. The goal of the Christian life in a fallen world is for you to be able to live in the midst of that bad stuff and bad people with full trust in a sovereign, wise God, good and powerful God. Things that might trouble us, such as the way we look, the way others treat us, or where we live or work can actually be sources of strength, not weakness. Jesus said to his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So as followers of Christ, we need to accept the fact that we live in an imperfect world and allow God to do his perfect work in us. Our Lord will give us his peace as we confidently entrust ourselves to his care. And that peace of God, according to Philippians 4, will, here's what it says, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Some of you remember John Bunyan, know the name John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He has a, another allegory called the Holy War, and he illustrates how this peace guards the believer's heart from anxiety, from doubt, from fear and distress. In Bunyan's Holy War, Mr. God's Peace, that's a character, was appointed to guard the city of Mansoul. As long as Mr. God's peace ruled, Mansoul enjoyed harmony, happiness, joy, and health. However, Prince Emmanuel, that is Christ, went away because Mansoul grieved him. Consequently, Mr. God's peace resigned his commission and chaos resulted. And that's teaching you that the believer who doesn't live in the confidence of God's sovereignty will lack God's peace and be left to the chaos of a troubled heart. But our confident trust in the Lord will allow us to thank Him in the midst of trials because we have God's peace on duty to protect our hearts. During World War II, an armed German freighter picked up a missionary whose ship had been torpedoed. He was put into the hold. For a while, he was too terrified to even close his eyes. Sensing the need to adjust his perspective, he told how he got through the night. He said, I began communing with the Lord. I was reminded of his word in Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So I said, Lord, there isn't really any use for both of us to stay awake. <laughs> if you're going to keep watch, I'll get some sleep. And he replaced his fear and anxiety with thankful prayer and the peace of God that resulted enabled him to sleep soundly. You too will enjoy peace and rest when you cultivate the habit of looking to God with a grateful attitude. So, go to God in prayer rather than freaking out before you say anything else with thanks for the myriad of things there are to thank Him for. Second, focus on godly virtues. So you come to God with this thankful prayer, no matter what's happening around you, and you focus on godly virtues. Prayer is our chief means of avoiding anxiety. After the Bible says not to be anxious, it adds two complete sentences telling us how we're to pray. But the English text, reflective of the Greek from which it's translated, launches into a new paragraph in Philippians chapter 4, on godly thinking and practices. Philippians 4 is sometimes oversimplified and misrepresented as a, just a grocery list on how to deal with worry, but it's really more than that. As believers, we're to leave the sin of worry behind with our prayers. Now hear this. Pray, leave it behind with your prayers, and become different people through new ways of thinking and acting. So yes, I, I pray. And I give it to God through, through prayer. I leave worry behind. But I also want to grow. I want to become different in the patterns of my, of my thinking and acting. So we want to gradually become different people through new ways of thinking and acting. And that's why Philippians 4, again, all about being anxious for nothing, but in everything, go to the Lord in prayer prayer and petition with thanksgiving and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yep, that's all true. And then verse 8 of Philippians 4 says this, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So yeah, I've got stuff around me. I got it. So instead of wigging, pray. Thank God. Get out your blessing list. Should be very long. But also develop new habits of the mind. Thinking differently. Because we are products of our thinking. The Bible says in Proverbs 23 and verse 7, as a person thinks within himself, so is he. So in our remaining time, to provide some background, let's survey what the Bible says about our thinking patterns both before and then at the time of salvation and then after having come, come to Christ. Before we come to Christ, the Bible talks about how we, how we thought. And in de describing unredeemed human beings, people that have not come to Jesus, people who are not born again, people who are not saved, using the Bible's terminology. Here's what Romans chapter 1 and verse 28 says. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. At one time, our minds were corrupt. Worse, our minds were blind because, the Bible says, quote, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. As a result, our minds were engaged in futile thoughts, empty thoughts. In fact, prior to salvation, people's minds are, here's what the Bible says, darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Since the mind of the unbeliever is corrupt, it doesn't choose what's good. Since it's spiritually blind, it doesn't know what's good. And since its thoughts are empty, futile, it doesn't perform what's good. And since it's ignorant, it doesn't even know what evil is doing. Wow. What a mess that is, right? All right, so you come to Jesus. You come, to, you come to Christ, you've had that kind of baggage, that's who you are, that's who we are naturally in our sin nature, that's who we are, and now you come to Christ and you're supposed to be gradually thinking different. Your mind is supposed to gradually be being renewed. But a lot of people just come into the Christian life the same way they came into marriage, a relationship with Christ the same way they came into a relationship with their spouse. Okay, I've got this new relationship. There's some benefits to it. But it's just me, the way I am. You know, and so Lord, you, you know, you took me the way I am, and so you should be pleased for the rest of my life with the way I am. You know, so you've seen churches that say, they advertise, come as you are. I'm great for people to coming to church, with people coming to church as they are. I'm not great with people leaving the church as they were. And those are different. And see, that's the Christian life. You come, yes, just as I am, but God begins to change us. But too many Christians are not renewed in their thinking. A lot of reasons for that. I think one of them is that we think that heaven is the, is the end game for God. Me getting to heaven is God's endgame. Look, God's got a lot more going on better than me showing up. Me getting to heaven is going to make God's day. I mean, thank God that he loves me despite me and you despite you. But 
us getting to heaven is not God's end game. God's end game has always been in every situation before creation, at creation, in creation, after the consummation. It has always been and always will be that God be glorified. Always. Which means, as a Christian, that's your concern, that I'm glorifying God, that, I'm, that I am emulating the character of God. That's what the glorify God means, emulate the character of God. That's why the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the character of God. That's what sin is. And so God cares right now in the here and now on March 6, 2022, he doesn't just care about you getting to heaven. He cares about you being conformed to him now. And too many Christians don't think that way. So they're going through the motions to get to heaven and trying not to kill anybody on the way, trying not to get killed on the way, and just arrive safely home. And that was never God's intent. For us to live our lives, as you guys have heard me say, as if this life is just one big Bill Naps. You guys remember Bill Naps? You know, at the corner of Allen and King. That's a great location. Why has nobody put anything in there? We still got the Bill Naps sign. And our family used to love Bill Naps. We used to take the girls when they were little to Bill Naps. And then some hotshot came in and bought it and tried to jazz it up, change the colors, change the menu, all of that, and within a few years, the thing's gone. What a, what a tragedy. But, you know, Bill Naps was known, even though our family's pretty weird and we took our little girls there, it was known for old people being there. And it was called God's Waiting Room. And too many people think of the Christian life as that. This life is just waiting. I'm just waiting to die or Jesus to return and go to heaven. And the truth is, the Bible spilled a lot of ink about stuff we're supposed to be doing now. And being conformed to the character of God, glorifying God, that's what that is, is chief among them. That means we think about our thinking. We change our thinking. We focus on godly virtues. All right. We will review how we think before coming to salvation, how we're to think at salvation and after salvation in the here and now next week in our last lesson on anxious for nothing. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the blessings of having your word, your truth, your people, your spirit. All of these are means of grace that you give us in order to indeed conform to the image of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for today. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who care about that enough to be here, to give attention, and now help us, Lord, to do the harder part of applying to our lives, in our circumstances, the things that you have taught us from your word. Lord, this afternoon, perhaps before we leave this building, there will be things that will confront us that we will react to. Lord, check our reactions. Help us to respond according to the truth that we have learned, to thank you, and to, th and to thank you profusely 
And then, Lord, to think differently about who we are and where we are and what's going on in our lives. And as a result of that, Lord, do your work in us, gradually transforming the way we see this life, our circumstances, others, ourselves, and you. Do that this afternoon, we ask you, this week. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.